Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning and welcome to Talking Point. Well, the overcrowding in hospital emergency departments has eased a little bit this morning, but is predicted to increase again in a few weeks as the annual flu outbreak and general winter diseases are predicted to continue. This morning on Talking Point, we're going to attempt a diagnosis and see if there are any reasonable solutions to the problem and compare our situation to other countries. 52106 for 30 cent for your texts and at Talking Point NT for tweets. In studio this morning, Roseanne Kenny is Professor of Medical Gerontology at St. James's Hospital and Director at the Mercer's Institute for Successful Ageing and TILDA, which is a very fancy new institute I had the pleasure of seeing before Christmas. Seven stories, high tech, world leading technology mm-hmm. and practices, Roseanne. You might mm-hmm. be able to tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about mm-hmm. that later. Mm-hmm. Terence Cosgrove is a health commentator and former editor of the Irish Medical Times. And Devon Williams is a GP and vice president of the National Association of GPs. And later in the show, we'll be talking to Dennis Campbell, the Guardian's health correspondent, for a look at how the NHS is coping across the water. Um, Terence Cosgrove, if I could start with you. Some perhaps cynics or old sages are saying, look, this is an annual story. The media love it. You've got victims, you've got doctors going on the telly, um, campaigning for their patients, beating up politicians, and it will all just pass over in a few weeks. It's a wonderful story for the media, Sarah. Uh, In fact, I uh, suggested a story to some of the Sunday newspapers that I actually had a solution to this problem. A well-known solution um, uh, it works in every other country in the world except for ours. And what I was told was, but that would kill our two pages of human interest. So I think the media have a huge responsibility here uh, in, in the sense of highlighting all the terrible tragedies, but doing nothing and spending nothing in terms of looking for answers. And that's right across the board in media. It's all about the, uh, the, the tragic stories and a chance for them to kick politicians, which they love to do. And, of course, politicians are spectacularly, you know, stupid in this regard, if I can point to one of all the solutions we might look at. And we take a politician like, say, Alan Kelly, Alan Kelly from Nina North Tipperary. When Alan was asked, what was the solution to this huge problem? He said, well, the problem is really in Limerick and what you need is ancillary hospitals. Basically, what you need to do is expand and build Nina Hospital. So there's the most Mm. cynical, the most this is there's a deep level of cynicism that goes with this era. There's a cynicism that people don't care. And I think the public out there could understand that the politicians, the hospital managers, the doctors organisations, they don't care. They don't care about patients. They're not going to be personally affected by it. Anybody on their income level is not going to suffer from this. And they just don't care. And 300 are the same as 500. The only difference, the only difference at all is how the public perceive it. And since none of the papers are ever going to produce any kind of solutions or suggest any kind of solutions and are going to damp that down and just do human interest every year, then we're just going to go around in this eternal circle of complaining. So what is the solution that you wanted to write about? Well, the solution is, you know, it works It works very well in the NHS. It works in countries like Australia and Canada. And it simply is to, if you view the, the, the hospital as a, a kind of a factory and there's inputs and there's a floor and there's outputs. And in Ireland, we just concentrate on the floor and on the outputs. We don't concentrate on who gets in. So I had the experience of, of being in an emergency department last year and the types of people that were being admitted, uh, it was ridiculous. And the reason why they're being admitted is because there's a junior doctor there trying to make a decision that is, let's be honest, above his pay level, above his pay grade. That's just a simple fact. Mm. There isn't a consultant there to say, you're absolutely fine, go home. Mm. You know, just because you think you've got a pain in your head. And I'll give you one example. I was there with um, 
a student came in from Tyrone and um, he'd been out on the batter and it was a few days later he thought he had a pain in his head and he'd been talking to his mum what did his mum say? you should go in and get an MRI scan yeah you should for free sure why not have the Irish government pay for it but what he really should have done was gone and paid a GP to say am I okay the GP would have said you're fine here's my diagnosis don't go out and drink 12, 13 pints at the weekend and your head will be fine but instead, he goes into the uh, ED department. The junior doctor is worried that perhaps it could be some, it always could be. There's a 1% of 1% of 1% chance it could be more serious. So he refers him in and he sits down beside the 86-year-old woman who's trying to get admittance for, for something serious. And therein lies the problem. Nobody wants to discuss the actual solutions. They want to simply use this as a means to promote their own agenda, whether they be a newspaper, a politician, or like I say, a doctor's organisation, or God forbid, a public sector union. Mm. So Yvonne Williams, you're a GP. Now that trend that Terence has mentioned of perhaps, now, and there, this is a multifactorial issue, you know, and we'll try and get around as much as we can this morning, but just on that one perhaps of people showing up in A&E who don't need to be there. I've had a quick look at some stuff and it seems that that is a European wide problem. So in Germany in 2009, 17.5% of outpatients went to A&E compared to 82% who went to their doctor. By 2014, that had risen to 29% of all outpatients who were arriving in A&E and only 70% going to their doctor. In the UK, the Department of Health there says four in 10 people attending A&E shouldn't be there. And I was talking to people in the HSC yesterday who thought maybe around 25 to 30% of people, maybe a bit higher, shouldn't be attending. They should have gone somewhere else first, perhaps to their GP or something like that. Can you account for why people are going to A&E before seeking out other medical treatment somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a very complicated problem. Mm. So it's, it's, there isn't one simple solution to this. And I think we do need to be careful not to be ageist and not to blame the patients for the inadequacies in the service that we have. We have a shortage of manpower, frontline staff, a shortage of beds and quite simply inadequate funding for it. So, yes, sometimes patients do go to A&E who don't need to be admitted. But most of the time they don't need to be admitted after having had blood tests or a scan mm. or a period of observation and then they're deemed to be fit to go home. Yes, yeah, 70% are being sent home at the moment. Now, But they could have had some treatment before. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's very few people who check into an A&E department and speak to the triage nurse and are told, actually, you don't need to see a doctor or have anything done. Off you go home. That really doesn't happen <coughs> very often. The vast majority of patients who are sent home are sent home after some assessment, some diagnostic test, perhaps an x-ray to rule out a fracture in their ankle or their foot or their toe, and then they're sent home. So I think we need to be careful just because you were sent home having been seen and assessed in a A&E does not mean that you shouldn't have been there in the first place. There's a minority of patients who probably don't need to be there, but they have to have somewhere to go if they feel unwell. And you have such a shortage of GPs, you have an out-of-hours crisis. We have great difficulty finding doctors to to work and provide service in the community, and we don't have enough minor injury clinics. Um, In Limerick, where I work, they shut down three A&E departments and every patient has to go through the central A&E department now. It's put huge pressure on it. They shut down the other smaller hospitals before the new unit was open. And in Limerick particularly, there is no private hospital so patients who have health insurance don't have the option that you have in Cork or Dublin or Galway of going to a private centre. Right, but with this outbreak of flu and say other annual diseases like uh, winter vomiting and that, you know, the HSE are repeatedly saying 
people are coming into A&E with these um, bugs and diseases and they should just stay at home. It can be managed at home. They don't need to be here and actually all they're doing is spreading the disease. Yes, and that happens. I mean, we have patients who come inappropriately to the GP surgery too and the HSC have a responsibility to do a better PR media education campaign about the flu vaccine. I mean, they can't get, you know, high rates of vaccines amongst their own staff and then they're preaching to the public about getting vaccinations too. That lacks credibility. Well, there's Um, a couple of points there. I mean, Hold on a second. Is there a healthcare staff out there that has a right not to have a flu vaccine? Come on. I mean, this is not the HSE's responsibility. This is doctor's responsibility, the nurse's responsibility. They should have that vaccine as a matter of fact. And if they don't have it, out they go. I mean, you, at some stage, you've got to have some discipline on this. And one of the things that Yvonne has said, and it's kind of true, but it breaks down about this. About a third of the patients don't need to be there. But another third don't need emergency. The word is emergency department. It's not x-ray department. It's not let's have a look at you department. It's emergency. And those third, what they've done in many places and, and particularly in, in one instance, I don't want to mention, I don't want to single out one, but w- what they've done successfully to reduce ED numbers is to say to that third, if we can get a consultant in there as opposed to a junior doctor and that consultant can say, yes, you do need to have an x-ray on that, but you don't need it today. Go home and I'll give you an appointment for next Thursday, next Friday, and you can come back. Then that gets rid of another third. And so you, you're down to the actual one third of people who actually need to be there and that's a very significant thing. And Terence, that comes back to staffing. We have such a low rate of consultants in this country and a low rate of GPs compared to the OECD average. You know, half the rate of GPs in Ireland compared to Canada which has a good functioning healthcare system. And I want to come back to that thing about the flu vaccine in a minute. 28% of healthcare workers taking up the the flu vaccine is remarkably low and Terence, a consultant has texted in. He says he's spending this whole, or she could be uh, spending this whole weekend at work making decisions for my patients and you shouldn't suggest that they don't care that they I'm not, suggesting, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a, a, a yeah. huge cad, ca, cohort of dedicated consultants out there and I'm not blaming consultants I'm not pointing towards them in particular or individuals what I am saying is that there, the way the system is organised and the way it's managed it's not conducive to that and I mean while there may be consul- one consultant can text in and say I'm here at 24 hours but the reality is the representative organisations and particularly the IMO and the IHCA argue for 9 to 5 schedules on, on these things as much as possible when, the, when we all know the real factor here the real time the important time is the 5 to 8 time and when that's done the the amount of people on trolleys is reduced and that's just a fact. Now, Roseanne Kenny, so you're professor of gerontology. So that's elderly people, care for the elderly. And they've been at centre stage throughout this crisis because this outbreak of flu is particularly affecting over 65s and more so over 75s. So could you give us a perspective both as a gerontologist and as someone from St. James's Hospital? I was having a look at the bed, the trolley count this morning. And James's, you're on green. You've only got seven seven people on trolleys. The other hospitals are still up 17 in Tala, 18 in Cork, 18 in Waterford, 15 in Limerick. So James's is doing something right. Tell us a little bit about that. I I don't think I necessarily want to single out a hospital, but I can certainly give you my experience in James's and I'm I'm a general physician there. So I see patients of all age groups um, and my particular interest is falls, faints, fits and funny do's. So that that's a, they're quite common symptoms to come to ER and I'll talk to you a little bit about mm. solutions that we've come up with that I think have influenced 
the trolley crisis. Relatively speaking, James's hasn't had the same burden of pressures um, this year um, as other hospitals. And maybe some of the pathways are a little bit different because we have an older population compared to other um, catchment areas, 16% over 65. Some of the hospitals we've talked about are 6%. And we are in the second most uh, socioeconomically deprived area in Ireland. So we, there, there's something that's 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 having a positive Im- impact. I'll talk about those solutions. But first of all, I would like to say that I think that a lot of prejudicial language has been used um, uh, in the last uh, recent period about older people, people as they get older. And everybody around this table and you, listener, there is there are one of two alternatives. You will be older, you will get older or you won't be around to know about it. They're the only two alternatives. So singling out older people and assuming that they are pariahs almost is inappropriate and that language has pervaded um, most of what I've read and heard during the media. It comes from from healthcare professionals as well as administrators and politicians. So let's put that to bed because if it was, if the same language was used for religion, for race, for gender, for the disabled, it would be illegal. So having said that, mm-hmm. I just want to and say And well that, said, well said. Having yeah. said that, I just want to say also finally that anybody who's listening, um, who is 80, will live on average another 9.8 years if you're a female and a further nine years if you're a man in Ireland or the United Kingdom. So that's what we can expect. So it's really important that these people are not dissuaded from appropriate care. Hospitals and general practitioners are not in the business and should not be in the business of dissuading people from appropriate care. And it's very difficult for an individual who is not a professional and not trained to know whether or not they are sick enough to go to hospital. And very often when this sort of scaremongering is used, you dissuade the most conscientious and the most appropriate from attending. And we can turn around illness in in all age groups, but older people also also is the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. So so delaying admission, delaying appropriate antibiotic treatment, delaying appropriate treatment for heart failure, etc., could actually be the death knell it for someone. It will have a knock-on effect and, and eventually lead to a longer admission. You know, patients who don't go in and delay it for three or four days may end up having to go to a high dependency unit or spend two weeks or ten days in hospital instead of three days. And we're seeing that on the ground this week. I've had patients who have refused to go in. They saw the pictures of the ambulances backed up. They heard about the queues and they did not want to go into the hospital and I saw them two and three times over the week and they were getting worse and worse and they'll probably end up having to go to A&E over the weekend because you know they are just going to get more sick they need oxygen therapy they need IV IV medication the tablets they're not working for them and these are patients with you know multiple complex conditions there isn't an alternative to acute hospital service for patients like that you know it, hospitals are where some people need to be but most patients could be looked after in the community if we had more hospice beds and community hospital right, beds Right but say Roseanne yeah. the flu vaccine okay yeah. now only 28% of healthcare workers took it up did you get the flu vaccine Yeah I've, I've, I've had the flu right. vaccine but, but and only point, 52% but, of older people got no, no, it No 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 can I just yes. can I just please give yeah. correct data here Yeah. because okay? I, I looked last night at the tilde data because fortunately we ask in tilde and it's, as you know it's a representative population sample there isn't actually a data source like it for people over 50 so overall, 35% of people over 65 did not receive the vaccine. 
Um, um, 15% of people over 75 did not receive the vaccine. So it should be 100% almost. Mm. We aren't there, but it isn't as gloomy in terms of the population the receiving the vaccine. What yeah. about the doctors? Well, to be what fair about, to the doctors, for instance, the nurses the and the doctors staff? actually have a higher uptake rate than any of the other people working in the HSC service. But there were a couple of simple things the HSC could do. You mentioned about people inappropriately attending with flu symptoms. Why have the HSC not got a free hotline number for the flu and the winter vomiting and all these seasonal outbreaks that patients can ring free of charge instead of coming to the GP surgery or to the A&E department and they could be triaged by nurses, given appropriate advice and only the most sickest people with flu would then need to attend their primary care physician. They can make a flu vaccination compulsory if they so choose to do so. That's what I do in my own practice. It's in my staff contracts that mm-hmm. staff have to be vaccinated against illnesses that carry a risk for themselves, their think. colleagues okay. and for patients. But Roseanne, on the, so on the healthcare workers getting the flu vaccine, what's the cultural issue there where more aren't getting I it? don't know. And I mean, I don't know of any evidence with respect to that. You know, I don't yeah. know of any research which is explored qualitatively. Yeah. Quantitatively, we can say yes or no whether somebody Roseanne, has had the, the greatest, vaccine or not. With the greatest not, respect. Yeah. I mean, you don't need research. I mean, these are people no, no, who are dealing sorry, with sick Terrence, people. Terence, with due there respect, should, I was asked a question. What be, are the reasons? And yeah, I'm not going yeah, to but, second but, but guess again, the reasons. But, but, but again, you're, 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 you're pushing it off. You're reviewing. You're talking about research. It should be patently obvious that somebody dealing with sick people, especially at a time when there's a, an outbreak of flu, that all healthcare workers should, as a matter of compulsion, have to take a flu vaccine. So that just seems like a you. basic I common sense agree. principle to people. And when, when the ordinary person in the street sees that they're not doing that or refusing to do that, they get a little bit upset and they don't want to be told about surveys and research about it. They want to know why it isn't happening. Okay, and so Rosanna agrees on that, that they should get I absolutely get it. agree with that. Now, so, go back yeah, to, to, to the elderly then. Yes. So, so there's this problem whereby you're saying they need to come into hospital earlier. Perhaps well, I don't know who the elderly are, so we will drop that term as well, because oh, almost right. that is connotation. So, so people as they get older. OK, okay. So there's a huge variation in how you age and that sort of thing. So people as they get older. Yeah. The inter- I've got some interesting data again. OK, yeah. Apologies all right, for those for who don't like data. But yeah. in the last two years, there's been an increase of 16 percent in a, an acute hospital admissions. I'm just using James's data now because yeah. that was the, the most accurate data that I could get last night. Um, it's across all ages, OK? It's not age specific. But as Yvonne rightly said, older people do stay longer in hospital. Um, they take longer to become unwell and they take longer to get better. And any of us who have children will know a kid gets sick very quickly and gets better very quickly. But as we age, that, 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 you know, that time frame changes. So, so, so part of the issue is once people are older and become unwell, they do, they do remain in hospital for significantly longer, an average of 18 days. So, so, so that's one issue. But the increase in admissions, despite a 10% reduction in hospital beds there's a 16% increase in admission there's a there's a, also an increase in in a decline in 30 day mortality with that increase which is which is brilliant Sorry, what does that mean that means that uh, the number of people dying over 30 day period the mortality in that period of time dropped from 14 to 8% so we are being more efficient. So let's acknowledge mm. the good things as Terence rightly said you know it's not all the story isn't all bad mm. We the patterns of 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 flux in in admissions and pressures on ED are consistent since two thousand and two. The HSE and 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 CSO data on this are are, are very consistent. If you, you can get this so on the web, so it's predictable. It's totally yes. predictable. So what can we do? First of all, I don't think there should be 
virtual shutdown over the Christmas period. Okay, we must continue to act as though because because our bodies don't shut down over the Christmas period. And it's interesting that it was on the first week in January that in most places there was this big pressure point. So activities should continue as normal in hospitals over that period of time. I absolutely agree. And and is James's exceptional in in that, that you keep activity going? You know, are other hospitals shutting down uh, diagnostic and, you know, uh, people taking I, I actually don't know right. if other hospitals are, but I do know that we took a decision in James's this winter to continue um, um, our diagnostic activities um, as, as, as usual. So there wasn't a pressure point on the on the yeah. first day of January. Okay, okay. so okay. that's one. So thing. that was one thing. But also, we've ta- we, we um, th- there are um, solutions which I which are shown to have worked in terms of proactive pathways. So, if you come, for example, with an epileptic fit to the emergency department, a very frightening experience, particularly if it's a first time fit. We, we, we've developed a, a, an epilepsy pathway for, where that person is plugged immediately into expertise, seen by that expertise, that expert as, as, a, as an acute rapid access um, mm. uh, admission, but not admission to hospital, admission to that service. So they're not actually admitted to hospital. We have the same for chest pain, we have the same for faints and falls, etc. So, so by doing that, um, you, 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 you adopt, if you like, an admission avoidance plan, but also we open those facilities, those rapid access facilities to general practitioners. So if Yvonne sees someone who she's worried about with maybe a stroke, this is a good example, a TIA, they can have a same day assessment with all of the diagnostics they need without actually requiring a hospital bed. So I, I think that this is a solution we should be moving more and more Absolutely. to. Absolutely, that's the more progressive model and they've done something like that in St. Luke's and Carlow and Kilkenny where there's an entire floor that has been built and opened and GPs have direct access to admit to paediatrics. So it to can gynecology. be done. It can be done but what we've seen this week in the Midwest is unfortunately those rapid access units were closed to us because all the patients, the beds had to be kept for patients going through A&E so instead of the GP being able to do what they normally could we were actually being told uh, you have to send them to A&E because right. we have to keep the beds for A&E patients. I have a few texts I'll just do and then we'll take a break. Um, so the irony of the point your guest was making in relation to political agendas finishing with God forbid public sector union is not lost on listeners. Um, someone says what about the four and a half thousand nurses who were given promotion instead of a pay rise which took them away from nursing duty I don't know about that uh, we need drunk tanks adjacent to A&E for drunks and druggies like in Poland it's a joke that these self abusers are entitled to register with no emergency problem as a triage nurse in a large Dublin hospital I cannot encourage anybody to go home no matter how ridiculous their presentation is so that's on the inappropriate attendances again uh, someone says this sounds like a very anti-public health service discussion well I think Roseanne has pointed out that there are solutions within the public service that can be done and are very effective so I hope that's rebalanced it and Pat says there isn't a public health system in the world that isn't in crisis so perhaps the US have it right health services aren't made to be public service well I wouldn't go that far but your point about the public health systems across the world being in crisis is true and after the break we're going to be talking to Dennis Campbell uh, the Guardian's health correspondent about what's going on in the NHS that's after these Also on tonight's programme, warnings the NHS is in the grip of a winter crisis as patients die on trolleys and the Red Cross is called in to deal with a humanitarian emergency. Um, Dennis Campbell from The Guardian. Good morning. Um, So uh, this is a familiar problem to the UK, not just Ireland, the annual um, trolley crisis. How severe is the problem there? 
every indicator, every, every problem, every measure of every problem in the NHS, every measure of every pressure on the NHS, Sarah, this winter is worse than it's been for the previous four or five years. We actually, although there are, yes, there are kind of headlines around a winter crisis every year, uh, this probably this year is probably worse. The, the, the deaths reported yesterday at uh, the hospital in Worcester in the Midlands are kind of a, probably the most vivid crystallisation of it. But all of the performance metrics for hospitals, how many uh, patients they get in and out the door, A and E wise, within four hours, they've all gone south. The number, all of the all of the different waiting times the NHS uh, sets its performance by have all been going south. One uh, top A and E doctor here said to me recently that the uh, the worst two winters we've had in the last year was one was last winter and one was last summer and that this winter is now shaping up to worse than either of those two. Now, is is this being attributed to a demand-led problem that there you've got an aging population and people are getting sicker or is it a supply-side problem and that this is all about cutbacks and fewer beds and less staff? All right, so, so it's all of that and a wee bit more. Okay, <laughs> all right, uh, okay. There, there clearly is, in, in crude terms, there clearly is a supply and demand problem. The, the, the NHS does not have the supply in terms of the, uh, the, the beds and the human infrastructure, crucially, the, uh, the, the, the staff to do the job to treat people as well as possible, as quickly as possible at the times that people turn up. We also have a genuine phenomenon of rising demand. Uh, the emergency attendances are up by 4 or 5% a year. Emergency admissions are up by the same the number of people requiring operations, etc. All of these metrics are up by 4 or 5-6% a year. Uh, uh, the elderly population is, is mainly driving it, but I think there's increasing awareness, particularly in England, that basically the NHS is really, really poor at keeping people well and healthy in their homes and away from hospital because of uh, the limitations of the, the, the GP system here we have here and particularly now the, the social care system, people being kept well at home through kind of domiciliary at, care, uh, domiciliary at home care services with basic tasks and so on. The NHS and local councils that do that side of it are really, really poor at that. There's been loads of talk in this country for years and years about how the NHS has to kind of rebalance, repurpose what it does to do much, much more of that. And basically, it's been it's been the dog that hasn't barked. They actually haven't done it, and the results of that, the the, the consequence of that, are now feeding in significantly to the to what people are calling the crisis now. Now, so just go back to approaching it from those two different sides. One on the demand. You know, are people placing? Um, I don't know what the word is, but um, too many demands on the health service. So the Department of Health is saying that four out of 10 people who attend A&E shouldn't be there. You know, they're they're inappropriately attending A&E. But then on the other hand, what about funding? You know, have the Tories been cutting back on funding or is it the case that this really is a money problem and money would help solve it? Okay, uh, I wish it were as simple as the money, uh, but it's, it's certainly the money is a big is a big problem. If you, if you have a health service where that the the the, the costs of providing it are going up by four percent a year, but you've been giving it just under one percent a year for the last six years, which is certainly the situation in in the UK, then clearly there's a mismatch between the available funds. Uh, you know, well, the, the, you don't have the, the the staff and the organisation don't have the money to, to do the job as well as they would like. It's been muddling along. It's been making some efficiencies. Staff have seen their pay clamped basically for the last four or five years in a row. Uh, 
but it's a wee bit more than that. Uh, I certainly A and E doctors would would by and large underscore what the government say that sort of between at least a third of people who turn up at a, an A and E in an ideal world should be able to go elsewhere. There's been a big drive in the NHS for the last few years. There's been adverts on buses, radio, adverts on radio stations, all sorts of things saying, "Please don't come to your local hospital unless it's absolutely necessary." So that's fine. So where do people go instead? GP surgeries still largely operate on uh, in in England on daytime hours on weekdays, but not not entirely, but by and large pharmacies which people are increasingly encouraged to go to they operate sort of similar hours uh they're seeing more people go along to see them with minor ailments. But still, people's uh, instinct much, much, much of the time is if they want to get seen quickly is to go, instead of waiting maybe 10 days, two weeks for a GP appointment, to go to the local A&E unit. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the old cliche in the NHS. It's the only place in the NHS where the lights are always on. And everybody in the world uh, uh, is aware that there is this four-hour target that you should be seen within four hours. We know that target's slipping, but certainly A&E doctors have been telling me for several years that people turn up with... Uh, uh, their favourite book, their laptop, and a mug of coffee, sit there, check in and say, and they know they're going to be seen within four hours. So and to, to a small extent, the performance targets for A&E are, have made, uh, made a bit of a, they're both a blessing and a curse for the NHS. So it's not just as simple as, simple as money. Again, the failure to build up out-of-hospital services for going back probably 20 years is really kicking in now. Okay, and I think Yvonne would probably um, agree that that's part of the problem here too. So just finally then, is there a political acceptance that that's the problem and that that's what they need to fix and it might take money? Or is Britain still in this um, mode of austerity and cutting public health costs? That, given that we have a still relatively new Prime Minister in Britain, that's actually a very, very good question. Uh, David Cameron had his critics uh, over the NHS and ever be in his, in his six years as Prime Minister, but he was always very interested in the NHS. He saw it as very important to sort of detoxifying the Conservative Party brand uh, to make sure that the, the, the Tories were seen as friendly to the NHS. He gave the NHS kind of less than 1% a year. The uh, new Prime Minister, Theresa May, seems strangely... Uh, uninterested in the NHS at all. Uh, all of the organisations have been making their, their, their voices heard within uh, within government, but she herself personally and the people around her Downing Street seem very uninterested, strangely uninterested. And I, my, my guess, you haven't asked me for my view, but I think my, my view would be that she might be storing up uh, a big political problem that might bite her, because I think, if, if, I think we're probably now in the early days of seeing this really coalesce, the state of the NHS in Britain coalesce into potentially big, big political problems and she seems curiously uninterested, curiously deaf to the pleas of health professionals, people running NHS organisations and so on. Okay, Dennis Campbell, health correspondent with The Guardian. Many thanks for that this morning. Um, So Yvonne, I'm sure a lot of that might sound familiar to you, that people going to A&E inappropriately because they can't access a GP. And actually, I know people do complain about the system here, but I have relations in Northern Ireland. And yeah, you can ring up and told to come in two weeks to see your GP. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of points to follow up on from Dennis there. Firstly, um, he mentioned the 10 to 14 day wait to see a GP in the UK. This is what GPs in Ireland have been warning about. And Mm. we've seen our own NAGP survey from this December has shown that in the space of one year half the number of GPs are able to see you within three hours for an urgent problem that's going to get worse again next year and the year after unless we have a new contract and we need it this year we need negotiations to start and a new contract so that we can change the way we deliver service to patients. The second point I'd like to make um, and Dennis actually wrote about this in The Guardian in 2014 there was a study commissioned for the NHS Deloitte did it and it showed that for every one pound that you spend on general practice community services you save five pounds from 
the health service and they estimated for the NHS that they would uh, avoid 545,000 ambulance calls that if you free up GP's time in the community to look after patients over 65 and patients with complex problems you will save the money but we need a transitional fund you can't find the money and take it out of the hospital and into the community until you fix the hospital sector so ring fenced money new money needs to be found to allow that transition of services Has there been a detrimental change in how GPs work that there was the era of the community doctor and now um, a lot of GPs want to work family friendly hours shorter hours that has been linked actually to the increase of women GPs who perhaps are starting their families and can't give the, the same level of service I that might have I been suppose done two things ago. have changed yeah. and one of them is that I know that the GP that I would have taken over from back 20, 30 years ago people only rang their GP in the evening or called to his house in the evening or her house in the evening in some cases if there was really something urgent yeah. they didn't ring and disturb what has happened now our out of hours service I go straight from seeing patients like yesterday from quarter past nine right through until after six o'clock and if if I was on call, I would walk five minutes to the local centre and I would see patients continuously until and midnight. are it's, they sick? Some of them are sick, but what has happened is there just isn't the capacity in the service. So the A&E department is backed up. The GP surgeries are full. So the minor injury right. units are closing. Right. But so some of them are sick. All of them are sick, but not all of them are urgent. But to you, if you have a child with a temperature, you don't know, is that a head cold? Is that meningitis? It could be any one of, of any, you know, yeah, any list are, of problems. Yeah, but that's a very good point because I have three children and if they did get a temperature, I would check for rashes and stuff like that. But mostly I'd say it'll be gone in an hour. And I have friends who'd be ringing up the doctor. Oh, my God, the baby's got a temperature. The baby's got a temperature. And I'm saying, relax. They'll yeah. be fine. I mean, look, it, you know, it's you know, very much a personal thing and people's level of comfort with illness varies depending on their past experience. If you've lost a child already to meningitis, ah, you but will come panic. on, people haven't. No, they lost. do, but I suppose yeah. the point is that if you have a lack of GPs, a lack of doctors, you know, minor injury units that close at eight o'clock or ten o'clock. Where are people supposed to go when they're sick? You have to fix the manpower crisis to change the way the service is delivered. You can't have GPs working but nine to midnight and overnight and then going back to the surgery the next day to work from nine health to six. Service pay for people who are using that health service when they're not that sick and maybe people should relax stop looking at Google to find that their headache could be a brain tumour and showing up at the doctors like are people just using well, the service there is too a, much there is a much greater yeah. demand for healthcare but we also have a rising population so the demand is going up and up because our population is growing Terence what's your view on well, that? Well you know we're talking about what doctors used to do my father was a doctor oh, and yeah. uh, he got a, a fraction of what doctors get nowadays for working 24-7 including Christmas Day and never spent Christmas Day with us and the patients weren't sick they were drunk they were drunk and the wife was getting beaten up and he'd spend a couple of hours pulling the man off I mean that was what we're talking about you know and those guys were, and all those people worked day in day out and they got an awful lot less now what, what's happened is terms and conditions got better I don't argue with that a lot more women have come into general practice I don't disagree with that all of those things are good things but I mean the, the real point here is that general practice has been used for, for many many years as, as the, the, the poor relation of the health service we haven't developed and modernised and the reason for that is the power that hospitals and hospital managers have and, and the, the way the HSC is managed. Now, I know we'll all be relieved. Simon Harris has written a strongly worded letter to the HSC saying that some managers may have to be in some way accountable for the mess. But you know what? If that doesn't work, he can write a very strongly worded letter. I mean, to have this, to, well, I mean, to have this level of management, I mean, it's laughable. It just is so laughable. It's, it's like Michael O'Leary saying that airport charges should be increased. He's never going to say that. You know, hospital managers are never going to be held accountable for this. The Department of Health is never going to be held accountable. The HSE is never going to be well, held accountable. The minister will Roseanne, be you're in the system there. 
so the mm. one of the arguments is we are second only to the United States when it comes to spending on health care. This cannot be a money problem. It must be a management problem. Now, you've seen in James's that management can change effectively and successfully outcomes for patients. Should that be repeatable throughout the rest of the system? So, so I, I really want to caution that I, that I have no, yeah. I don't, I'm not comparing to other hospitals because okay. I don't know how they're functioning and that may be the very same and there may be different okay. pressures. So it's, I mean, it's so complex, as Yvonne yeah. said, this that it's it's not, you can't make a superficial okay, but assumption. Say, but do you see, do you see management as being the solution rather than money? Okay, it, it's be? an interesting, the, the healthcare costs are interesting. Um, um, in, in, in that we, you know, in, in, in that context, we have significant significantly fewer beds than other healthcare systems which are yeah. spending less and we we have uh, significantly fewer general practitioners etc so so it, where that where the cost is going is in a really important question and then how we can reutilize that cost to be more efficient should be what we're, we're so where, all focused where on. Where is the money going? And if it's not in the beds and it's not in the GPs, where is it? Well, I, I mean, we need to look at our complete yeah, I mean, system. A I mean, huge percentage of the healthcare budget yeah. is going into the acute hospitals. It's absolute insanity to keep spending the money in the same way, in the same place. The government and the minister talk about primary care being the way forward, having the patients treated in the community. But the money isn't following the words. And that's what we need. And we can't seem to get the money out of the acute hospitals. So we need a ring-fenced fund to do that. Just for that transition period, it will take maybe mm. two to five mm. years to build up the service, recruit mm. the staff from abroad. We're in a global market. The NHS are short of nurses and doctors. So are we. We're competing with Canada and Australia. So there needs to be a very strong recruitment campaign from the HSC and it really needs to start now because this will take a while to build up the staff and the manpower. So a couple of your texts. Someone's bringing up the under six free healthcare issue. We'll get you in on that, Yvonne. I know you feel strongly about that. Uh, the elephant in the room with our health system is that demarcation is being dressed up as patient care. Restrictive labour practices at all levels are a problem. Uh, Paddy and Cork says, I guarantee that at least 90% of people turning up in A&E without an immediate life-threatening injury aren't paying for the service. I think everybody has to pay 75 unless you've been referred there by a doctor, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, here's one on the low uptake of the flu vaccine by healthcare workers. I'm a nurse. I never get the flu vaccine. I have never had flu. I will get the flu vaccine when the following happens. One, I'm guaranteed I will not suffer adverse effects. I don't think that can ever be guaranteed with any vaccine. And two, if I suffer adverse effects, then the drug company and HSE will take responsibility for the harm done to me and compensate me accordingly. So I was told yesterday by someone in the HSE that there is a cultural issue with the healthcare workers that they are suspicious of. Aside, as, aside from anything else, yeah. there are the nutters out there, the anti-vaxxers. Healthcare staff should be should be ta- should be glad of the opportunity to take a vaccine to prove science over. I won't use the B word, but rubbish. You know, I mean, healthcare workers should welcome the opportunity. That attitude is just symptomatic of the. I mean, just apparently, just it is symptomatic. Um, Roseanne Kenny, let's go back to aging populations. And how this is going to, this has become and is a problem that's going to get worse and worse as our populations age. In Germany, over mm. 21.5% of people are aged over 65. Mm. Ireland is actually pretty good. 12.7% of our population is aged over 65. Mm. So we're only starting out on this pathway of we how will, you care. We for will an aging almost population. double that proportion over the next 25 years. So we're talking now about a crisis 2017 that will that will d- 
double proportionately in the context of ageing demographics over the next 25 years. So we know that. So we should be prepared for that. And we should be creating solutions to accommodate that. And, and you know, we, we've talked about alternative pathways, rapid access pathways, much closer liaison between hospital activities in, 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 in admission avoidance and general practitioners. General practitioners having rapid access consistently. Um, so so their solutions that 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 I think there's good evidence will work provided we deliver that. Part of the issue in the NHS and I worked in the NHS um, at a junior and a very senior level for 21 years. Part of the issue there is that general um, practitioners are inundated with paperwork. So as we relocate funding to secure a more proactive and active community service vis-a-vis general practitioners and ancillary staff in the community we have to ensure that it isn't actually bound down by red tape and administration that these healthcare professionals are freed up to give their healthcare professional time to patients rather than doing paperwork. So we really really need to make, make that absolutely clear in, in, in this transition period. Have you any confidence that that might happen? It has to happen. I mean, it doesn't matter what I've got confidence yeah, just in to or not. At the moment, a single-handed GP looking after patients at medical cards has to choose between a secretary nurse and a practice manager. You can't get a subsidy for all three and that single-handed GP, more than any group practice, needs that manager to free them up from paperwork so that they can get on with seeing patients. And, you know, there simply isn't the subsidy there. We've had 980 million taken out of general practice in the last five years. So you cannot take that much money out of the health service and not expect to see a knock-on effect. To blame the flu for this season, I mean only 270 patients have actually been admitted with flu for the entire season. That's not a huge amount when you compare yeah. it to the number of beds and it's the same level as 2010, 2011. Yeah. So this was predictable. Yeah, but isn't that a function of triage? That that's the system that people come to A&E because they're sick. It's assessed then how sick they are. So yes, only a proportion of them are admitted because the rest of them don't need to be admitted. So that's not saying, oh, the problem therefore isn't really that bad. It's not to do with the flu. It means all those other flu patients were sent home because they didn't need to no, be but admitted. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that in terms of the bed crisis to say, you know, this yeah. has taken us by surprise. It's been a huge surge. No. The levels this year are the same as the winter no. 2010, 2011. So it's not that we have an epidemic. We don't have a flu epidemic at the moment. No. God forbid if we had one or we had a major incident or a terrorist incident or a crash at the airport because there's no free capacity. The hospitals are no. at overcapacity all the time. Uh, so Terence, on that, what responsibility is there on the public themselves to take care of their own health? Um, so by getting that vaccine, by washing hands, by maybe not mm. going out all over the place at Christmas when we know these bugs are at well, the I, most I, I don't think I don't think I think the, both doctors here will agree with me. You can't really blame the patient ultimately, though. I think the public have a responsibility and that is to get rid of the Alan Kellys and the Simon Harris's and start voting for people who actually care about evidence-based medicine. And that is, Yvonne is right, a lot of money needs to move into, into to primary care. Look, medical inflation runs at about 10% a year. Uh, Roseanne is right. We're getting old, more and more older people. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until somebody does something. And the time to, sub- to solve the problems of 2025 is now. Now we can solve it. It's going to get much worse unless we start doing things like the things that are suggested, putting a lot more money into primary care, dealing with chronic d- disease in primary care. And, and the UK have an older Roseanne. population already. They're more advanced in their ageing demographics. We're relatively young, 12 point. They've almost got 20% over the age of 65. So this this terrible crisis we're seeing in the NHS at the moment is 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 what is in store for us if we don't really try and prepare for this. And in the case of an emergency, in yeah. the case of, like Yvonne mentioned, if there was, God forbid, but if there was a serious accident 
accident at Dublin Airport or or at, at Cor- or anywhere where the, the hospitals just would not be able to cope. And that is a terrible indictment. And the thing about it is, everybody from Simon and Harris down to Tony O'Brien, the level of incompetence and the level of, of lack of response to, to doing practical things that the evidence is out there for that they refuse to do because politically solving this problem in five years time does not make sense for a government there's no votes in it in five years time they need to do something now so all their responses are based around getting a public reaction now or in six months or in a year like when Riley was there it's not about doing it for five years time which is what Yvonne wants which is what Roseanne wants which is what, I want, what everybody wants so I mean the thing is is you, if you're going to solve this problem in the large complex problem that is multifactorial as we all agree it's not going to be solved this winter but it could be solved for three or four winters time if people took the action now and, and weren't motivated by their own interest groups needs and, and, and demands Roseanne are we going to have to accept that as the population ages we are simply going to have to spend more on health or do you think this is manageable within current budgets but we just do things differently I think I think in the first instance we've got to look at how we can do things differently and there certainly is scope within the system to 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 introduce alternative methods within the current budget I mean let's we have to be practical here you know we're we're still in a significant period of austerity um we we were broke as a country. So uh, individuals need to make that decision. Do we pay more in taxes in order to facilitate aspirations about a perfect healthcare system or do we take what we've got and try and make the very best of what we've got? And I do think there's still scope in this system to make uh, to make adjustments and, 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 and changes. If I my my final thing would yeah. be that I don't think there is a consist there is enough of flexibility in the system for those of us on the ground to work with the HSE in a proactive manner to create solutions for this. It's almost like there are separate camps, and if only we could work with more cohesion across the system, government, HSE, and healthcare workers. You know, there are solutions out there and we'd just like an opportunity to, to introduce and some of those solutions. finally on that, so the politicians, you know, obviously come in for a lot of criticism on this. To what extent do you think is it a political problem that a particular Minister for Health can actually solve or do you think it is a more infrastructural management issue from the HSE? So um, I think that there are issues at all of those levels, actually. I'm sorry to be so vague on that, but I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. All right. OK, well, that's Roseanne Kenny. Our final word and also in studio this morning was Terence Cosgrove and Yvonne Williams. Uh, many thanks to my guests, Stephen Jordan and Joe Coffey produced. Marion Kennedy was on sound. And thank you for listening. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.